Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Come on, you do better than that. Look at them, they're getting offended. Look at them and say, it's good to see you. All right, now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about... Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. So whether you're watching uh, from our Lompoc campus or you're here in the room in Buellton, uh, we have a Bible for you if you need one. And so if you forgot it, you can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one uh, to you. And, uh, and then if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that one. That's a gift for you. Uh, and we pray that you read that Bible every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. We've been in this series for the, the past couple of weeks, few weeks, and we're going to continue on for uh, the near future, although we'll probably take a break around the holidays and then uh, jump back in after the first of the year. But I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read uh, a verse or two from Genesis 6, and then we're going to jump to Genesis 9, and we're going to look at some passages uh, there in Genesis 9. So you'll be stoked that uh, we're going to cover three chapters today. I know you're worried about uh, the pace that we're going at. We're going to see Jesus come back before we finish Genesis, right? And uh, so um, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 6. This series we've called Good News from the Start. Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 18. It says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your, wi- and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark, and keep them alive Will you, uh, with you. They shall be male and female. Then I want you to turn the page. I want you to go to chapter 9. He says, I'll establish my covenant with you. And then he explains this covenant. Chapter 9, verse 9 says, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as you as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We thank you uh, that this passage will reveal to us your character and your nature. Uh, When we're confused about who you are, you've left for us the revelation of your word. And as we read, we get to meet with you. As we study, we get to meet with you. As we ponder, we meditate, we think about as it goes into the very depths of our souls and begins to divide for us the intent of our heart, I thank you that you would reveal to us who you are. And we know that who you are is for our good. So let us do everything for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So we're in 
this passage, a familiar passage that people remember and think about, this idea of the, the flood, this global flood and Noah's ark. And this isn't a new story. This is a familiar story. And, but, I, but I think when we think about this particular passage and we think about this idea that there was a global flood, there's a few things that happened. Well, what is the validity of that? Is that true? Did that really happen? And, and then ultimately, why did that Happen. I've been thinking about this particular story for a really long time. I, I grew up in the mountains of East Kentucky. And I, I live in what some people call a hollow. We call it a holler, all right? And, uh, and, and I, I grew up in a holler in the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. And this great old song that uh, by Patty Loveless, uh, I'll never leave, they'll never leave Harlan alive. How many are are old enough to remember that song. There we go. Come on. And if, if, you, if you need uh, an introduction to this song, you can see a benefit concert that Chris Stapleton did for East Kentucky recently for the flood victims there. And they do a rendition with Patty Loveless on stage. But the words of that song go, the sun comes up about 10 in the morning. And the sun goes down about three in the day. Because if you live in the hollers of East Kentucky, you see about the sun about 10 in the morning. And the sun begins to go down about three in the day. And I live in the, the thicket of the woods in the hollers of Eastern Kentucky. And when I was a kid, I, I grew up on the Virginia state line and in coal mining country. And I, I remember they, uh, the state put like a $5 billion highway cut through from the state of Kentucky to the state of Virginia, a road that used to take us like 30 minutes. Every road was like Halama Beach Road, windy and, 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 and kind of up and down. And, and this particular highway basically blew the side of the mountain off from our little town in Jenkins, Kentucky, looked up to Virginia, and there is a mountain range. And when they did this cut through, they basically blew off the side of the mountain. And when they exposed the rock layers, geologists came from all over the world to study this particular rock formation in little old Jenkins, Kentucky. And I had some, uh, some great teachers when I was growing up who were believers who would use science and, and talk about science pointing to the validity and reality and giving evidence to God and to the scriptures. And one of those evidences is what you'll find in eastern Kentucky is what you'll find in the French Alps. What, what you'll find in mountain ranges all over the world that there are actually fish fossils on mountain ranges all over the world. Evidence that at one time these great mountains were under water. And then in eastern Kentucky, people would come there because the law of superposition, which is this, older rocks are on bottom. Makes sense, right? Soil and sediment begin to bury down the older rocks and new soil is on top. And so as you dig down, you will find older rocks on bottom and new rocks on top. But in eastern Kentucky, in Jenkins, Kentucky, when they removed the side of the mountain for this cut through into the state of Virginia, what it exposed was that it seemed as though one part of the mountain had been flipped up onto the other part of the mountain, breaking down the law of superposition. They found that the older rocks had somehow flipped up and were on top. Now, here's the thing about science. Science tells you what is. When you think about science, it's not describing what something should be or ought to be. Science is describing what is if which is interesting for people to say i believe the science or i follow the science using theological terms belief follow in a term with science see here's where science breaks down science can tell you what is the mountain seems as though it's flipped upside down here's what science cannot do tell you why or how that happened <laughs> This is where science breaks down. It's, it's unexplainable to the why 
that would happen. Then I get to Genesis 6. And Genesis 6 tells me about a global flood. It tells me that, that God chose, and we'll get into some of the why, but the what happens here is that the earth gave up its water from below. And at the time, this is what some theologians and scientists debate about what we call the canopy effect, which is that in this ancient world that uh, like our coastal climate, how many of you woke up the other day and there's so much dew around you thought it had rained? Anyway, right? We had a bouncy house go bad, right? Like uh, turned into a water slide pretty quick, right? And, and, and yet uh, dew will cover the ground like a, like a greenhouse effect. And so you, our coastal climate is like it never rains around here, yet so, oftentimes we need more rain, but somehow things get watered. Somehow we produce a lot of agriculture. Somehow we're able to do things we do. And a lot of times it is actually the waters above watering the ground below. Now this idea in the scriptures is that we all lived in this coastal climate, this ancient world, was like a greenhouse effect. And the Bible tells me that the, the waters above gave, gave way and the waters below gave way and made this global flood, changing the known world, changing the landscape, potentially flipping a mountain in eastern, eastern Kentucky upside down, that the lot, waters below would give up and may, potentially turn up side down. Now, here's the thing. I wasn't there. Neither were you. And that's the thing about uh, history is uh, it's not definitive. That's why we have courts of law and we use evidence and logic and we begin to build cases and you have to decide based on the evidence and, and overwhel the overwhelming uh, nature of a burden of proof to begin to think about what you believe. And, and yet that's no different in theology and biblical studies because scientists use the same thing. They use words like belief and follow and trust, trust experts, trust people in positions of authority. But what we've been talking about is you have to dig and begin to decide and think and wrestle with these conclusions on your own. You ultimately have to work out your own salvation, as the Bible says, with fear and with trembling, with holy fear and reverence for a holy God and begin to think about what you actually believe. We've been talking about what we believe in these kind of categories because every person has to wrestle with these four questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What are we doing? And where is this whole thing going? In other words, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And you cannot escape these questions, although you may ignore these questions and be bombarded with these questions at different times in your life. You'll ask questions of what do I do? What's right? What's wrong? What, how ought I behave? And in certain times in your life, you'll wrestle with meaning. I mean, you lose a job, you transition, you retire, you move, you do things, and you question, why am I here? But in order to answer these middle questions, you got to think about about the start and the finish of the whole thing. You got to ask the question, how did we get here? And then that leads me to how I got here is why am I here? And then that will lead me to what do I do? What's right? What's wrong? And where is this whole thing going? And they have to be coherent and consistent. You can't jump in and out of these particular categories. They cannot contradict one another. So if your origin story starts with random happenstance and blindless cause and a survival of the fittest, what do you do in the sense of morality? Is it only the strong survive? Is your morality based on randomness or or let me say it this way is your morality uh based on uh, whoever's strong and whoever can survive whoever can outrun and outlast whoever can out manipulate and and be more cunning to than the other is that the type of world and morality standard that you want to live by well the origin is connected to the morality when you think about the meaning of your life, do you, if it's random and blindless and causeless and by happenstance, well, then there is no meaning. 
to life. Everything is random. Everything is a coincidence. And I dare you to write that in a love letter to your wife and see how the meaning of life works out for you. It might be the end of your life, brother, right? And yet all of these categories have to be consistent and coherent, and they cannot contradict one another. And so when I think about this particular passage, science is, is, is limited in its ability to tell, although there's scientific evidence that suggests there was a global flood. There's scientific evidence and cultures who point to this particular flood and point to this uh, catastrophe that we would find fish fossils in mountain ranges, but science breaks down when it begins to tell you more than what is when you start wrestling with these particular questions. There's an elevated study, which is theology where I begin to think about why. See, the flood story is something that tells me what happened, and it also reveals why it happened. There's strong evidence to suggest that it actually happened. Now the question we have to wrestle with is why did it happen? And then you get to this place, and this is where things begin to break down, right? When you talk to someone who's maybe a non-believer, when you talk to somebody who's wrestling with these questions, and you say, God wiped out humanity with a flood. God brought wrath and judgment on all of humanity. And you say things like this. People begin to propagate ideas like this. I could never believe in a God who would do something different than I would do. What you begin to say is, how could you believe in a God who wasn't like me? You say, what? You're like, I I could never. Like, what what was God's mentality? Like, I don't understand that. You You mean God would destroy evil and wickedness? See, that's what the story begins to tell us in Genesis 6. That God saw, and we talked about this last week, that every thought of man... Every intention of his heart was evil constantly, always, and often. And, and ultimately, this story begins to tell us how God gave man over to himself. He wanted to go his way, out of his control. And so God gives man over to himself to where he gets what he deserves apart from God. See, if Genesis 1 and 2 is a creation account, Genesis 6 is a decreation account. If Genesis 1 and 2 is God bringing order to chaos, Genesis 6 is God removing his order and allowing the earth to plunge into chaos. Removing his order in the laws of nature. Removing his order from man and allowing man to cave in on itself. That's what Genesis 6 a it's, an, it's fixing a hardware issue. Things had gone so wrong. We talked about this way. This is a fantastic story. And so for those of you who weren't here, you have to go back and listen. There's some research you'll have to do. And there's some debate on what it talks about. But here's the idea. What it tells me is that the ancient world was different than this world. It was a spirit place and an earthly place. And there was way more intermingling of this spirit world and this world for human beings. And what it says is that the sons of God, the Elohim, this word Elohim, a title, these spirit beings had relationships with these women on the earth and produced sons. And this group of people, these men of renown were called the Nephilim. And, and yet we get this kind of stories in Greek mythology and, our, and even in modern mythology, this idea of these human spirit being hybrids, these people of renowned giants and men of great feet. Like that's not a new conversation. We just never knew quite where we got those stories from. Where did we come up with those ideas? And Genesis 6 tells us that in this particular setting that these fallen angels had relationships with the daughters of Eve and produced wicked men on the earth. And Second Peter actually talks about this. Second Peter, in verse 
chapter 2, verse 4 says this, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others... Second Peter begins to tell me that God actually condemned from that time on those angels in that particular time, condemned them to chains, but gave a way of salvation for human beings. Condemned these spirit beings who led men astray, produced wickedness on the earth to a point where this world needed to be wiped away and a new start. It's as if there's a hardware problem. And we need to start over. We need to rebuild. And God tells us this story. Why does it happen? Because God's judgment is righteous. God is all-knowing. When I think I know, like, like even think of, of, about your present reality, you think you have things figured out. You generally think you know what good looks like and what evil looks like. You think you have things dialed and, and, and you have some sense of judgment, all the things. But the Bible says in this particular passage that mankind had gone astray, evil continually, and something had to be done. Now think about that. And put that story on pause for a moment. Think about, you go, man, is that really? You'll start asking questions like everyone, like global, like destruction. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really, you wouldn't. Now, let's fast forward to 2022. And I pause for a second. How many of you like go to say 20 and you almost say 2020, you're like stuck in a time where I'm stuck all the time, right? It's like we're two years into this thing. I can't say 2022, right? Like, uh, and yet fast forward to 2022 and you look around the world, you see evil and atrocities and you say things like, I wish someone would do something about it. Now think about it. You think you see wickedness? You scroll the bottomless pit that is social media? You ever notice that it doesn't have a bottom? The Bible predicted a bottomless pit. Just going to throw that out there. Right? You scroll through it and you're going, man, what? this is evil continually, always. All I do is look around the world and go, I wish someone would do something about this. Like what? What should be done about it? See, when we think about this idea of God, oftentimes, let's be honest, when we think about God, we project onto God an inferior morality than we have. Think about when we think about God, we go, man, when we have conversations, we go, now I could never believe in a God who is wrathful. Listen, friend, you are far more wrathful than God. You know how I know this? You ever been to a four-year-old's birthday party? You seen this? This is new for me. I didn't grow up with this. You were saying they have these things. You've probably never seen it before. It's called a pinata. Seen it? Right? And like, and, and think about how crazy this is. Like they make it something the child loves. <laughs> like Captain America. Right? Like, uh, like a princess. Like it's a Disney princess. And then they give a child a bat and go, go at it. Right? Like, like, like what is wrong with us? Right? And they're swinging it and dad's over there like, mm. <laughs> they're like spinning circles, tripping, falling. But that's not the wrath I'm talking about. Those children are innocent. It's when none of those four-year-olds can break it. And all of a sudden dad's standing in the background like, watch out, son. <laughs> like I can, I can handle this. He grabs the bat and in a moment there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Have you, have you seen this? All hell breaks loose. You've disembodied the pinata. There's body parts everywhere. We even put candy in it to like display our wrath that's now broken onto the ground. What is wrong with us people? Right? And Kit, Kit, and then the one kid who loves Kit is like, what happened to Captain Daddy killed Captain America? Right? Like you, you've seen this. Right? What, 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 is, what is this? It's like he took out every anger that he had from like, man, I'm tell, like every childhood deal just in one fell swoop. Just he lets everybody know what's really deep inside. Some of you are going to flinch the next time you have a birthday party, right? Like, should we really, you know, like it's under grace. It's fine, right? And, and, and yet you think about 
your motivations. Think about your reactions. Think about when someone crosses you. Think about when, when you begin to look at other groups of people. When you think about, man, those people. Someone crosses you. What you, what you think they deserve. Man, we're quick to say, man, they are, they're going to get what's coming to them. Man, you cross me, fool me once, fool me twice, man. It's, it, it, never, I'm never having anything to do with them ever again. Like even stretch that out onto a global scale. When we think about the wickedness of people, people we don't agree with, maybe we don't even know, but we know someone, we go, man, we just do away with them. Man, quick to think about war, quick to think about violence, quick to think about what we would do if someone did something to us, if they hurt the ones we love, if they, if they invaded our home, what would we do? And the imaginations run wild, and you are not morally superior to God. You're not. Because even in the midst of God dealing with judgment, and you think about what this lets us in on. Even in the middle of chaos and potential for judgment, God makes a way of salvation. It says that Noah found favor in the sight of God and he made a way of escape. And then when the floodwaters supply, when, when he resets and there's a, a new hardware, God makes this covenant. Do you know this is the first time in the Bible that the Bible talks about covenant. It's like the first time. It's a word that we use all the time in Christianity, but this is the very first time we ever see it in the Bible. We read it in Genesis 6. He says, I will make a covenant with you. And then in Genesis 9, he explains what that covenant will be. Now think about a covenant. It's, it's likened to a contract. And contracts help us with transactions. Contracts give us the nature and the standard of tra transactions. Now think about your contracts, your contracts that you sign. You go, I agreed to do this so that you agreed to do this. And if you don't do this, then we will not do this. We have these contracts when you sign a home loan, a car loan. When, when, when you think about uh, contracts, they are helping guide the terms. But there's always terms for the agreement. There's, there's conditions based on the contract. Now think about that in the terms of human relationships. Like, because covenant is not just about this business trend. Com covenant has to do with relationship. Now here's the reality of our human relationships. All relationships are transactional. All of them. We, we, we don't want to believe that. We say it's unconditional, but let's be honest, we're keeping score, friend. Say amen or ouch, right? Right? Like we're keeping score. It's like, hey, you, you did the, the dishes. You didn't do the dishes. You took out the trash. You didn't take out the trash. Oh, I got home at this time. I took the kids on this day. I did this. And we begin to make sure that the ledgers and the terms of conditions line up, don't we? We make sure. We make sure when anyone, like eat, eat, even if we, we, we fail and we're, we're off on a line item, we can go back and backdate some stuff and find why, how that really balances out way seven years ago. Oh, you forgot, right? Just, just you know, you're coming to marriage counseling today, right? And, and, and yet we do this. We, we want to balance the, the ledger. We want to make sure every T is crossed and every I is dotted. And yet, let's be honest, we're quick to point fault and show the insufficient funds on the side of others and yet standing there bankrupt in our own morality. See, that's the problem is like, what, what we're honest about, if we're honest, the same things we hold others accountable to, we do not live up to. Now think about that in a relationship with the creator of the universe. Man, a, a, a God who is perfect and loving and gracious and slow to anger and actually even after man sins, goes his own ways, plunges, he still makes a way of escape even when he's 
dealing with the way the world needs a righteous judgment to come in and make a judgment and start over in his grace. See, we begin to think about God in relationship to us, but God is not like us. He's above. He's better. And his judgment is perfect and righteous. And in that, he's also good and merciful. And this is the first time we begin to see that. See, sometimes we project the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's Alpha, Omega, the beginning, the end, the author and finisher of our faith. And this is the first time in the Bible we hear this word covenant. And this is where we get its definition. This is how we know what it is like. Because God says, Noah, I will make a covenant with you, and here's what I will do. I will never destroy the earth like this ever again and so when it rains you don't have to worry about a global flood you don't have to worry you don't have to worry you'll you'll see my bow in the sky as light reflects in the sky you will begin to see a sign of my covenant and you will look and know that I've made a covenant with you and he says what he will do and he he extends his end of the contract but notice what he asked Noah to do nothing what what is it about that so you mean God's gonna gonna do things and commit to things and make a covenant and on Noah's side Noah has to do nothing but trust that God's going to hold his end of the bargain then all of a sudden this story begins to make its way through this theme begins to make its way through the Bible he calls it an everlasting covenant. But you're starting to go, man, like how is it really, is it really a covenant? If there's only one side holding, what about the other side? Then you're going to see a few more times in the Old Testament how God talks about covenant. He's going to talk to Abraham. He's going to make a covenant with Abraham. And he's going to say, your offspring, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your offspring is going to fill the earth. And then he goes to David the king of this people that came from Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you that someday your offspring, the seed of David, your son, one of your sons, will rule and reign and have an everlasting kingdom. Then the Old Testament concludes. Jesus comes on the scene And he begins to claim, and the Bible tells us, that he's the seed of David. He's the fulfillment of this covenant. Actually, at the Last Supper, he makes this claim. On the night Jesus was betrayed, and they share a meal, and he gives us this idea that we get for communion in the Lord's table. Here's what he says. This is the blood of my new three of you I get better at my job right I introduced this word to you a few minutes ago it's called okay you're tracking how you doing Lompoc right and Jesus says this is the blood of my new there's the first time we see it Noah Abraham David Jesus and here's what he says this one's different than those says this is the blood of the new covenant now what does that mean and how can he say that what, what does this mean that Jesus comes and gives a new covenant well the Bible is telling me the story from beginning to end and how ultimately Jesus comes and he uses this term for himself he calls himself Jesus favorite term for himself was the son of man Maybe you, maybe you would have thought it would have been the Son of God, but it's not. And maybe if someone knocked on your door and wanted to have a little conversation about who Jesus really is, they might tell you things like this, Jesus never claimed to be God. But that's not true. Because when he says Son of Man, he's referring to this passage in Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision 
In a time when there's turmoil and exile under wicked nations and they're looking for hope, Daniel has this vision and he sees one coming on the clouds and he says, he looked like the son of man and he was coming on the clouds. What was this coming on the clouds? Was to fix all of the injustice around. All of the betrayal all of the persecution, all of the exile, all of the torture, all of the wrong. He was coming to set everything just right as the righteous judge. And he looked like the son of man. But then it gets kind of tricky. It says that God lifted him up and seated him right next to the ancient of days. He then God, the, the Ancient of Days, makes his enemy a footstool and all of the earth begin to worship and bow at the feet of the Son of Man. Now, there's a problem with this. The first commandment, remember when God gave Moses an iPad? Wasn't that great? It was a tablet. Uh, anyways, uh, preacher jokes. Uh, and uh, he... he, he in, in the first command, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then in Daniel 7, you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, God seating him next to the Ancient of Days, and everyone worshiping him the same as the Ancient of Days, as like God. If the Son of Man is not also God, then God has convinced man to break his first command unless the Son of Man is God. Jesus referred to himself, you shall see at his trial, it was the very thing that convicted him before Caiaphas. And he says, and yes, they say, are you the Messiah? Do you claim to be the one? And he says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And Caiaphas rips his robe and condemns Jesus to death. This is the very line that seals his fate and sends him to the cross. Why? He claimed not just to be a man. He claimed to be God in the flesh. That's the only way he could say this is the blood of the new covenant. What's the story of the Bible? The story is God makes a covenant with man and says, I'll be faithful even when you're not. He says, I will hold my end of the bargain even when you can't. I will be loving and gracious. I will do all the things you cannot. And the Bible tells us a story that God pursuing, loving, making covenants, blessing, giving prosperity, and man cannot keep his end of the bargain because the Bible is a story about everyone else getting it wrong. And then God saying, I'll do it. God makes a covenant with man that man cannot keep. So what does God do? He becomes a man and holds the other end of the bargain. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story that God became a man. Why is this covenant in his blood? The covenant in his blood is because our side of the transactional ledger is we're bankrupt. And the wages of sin is death. What we've accrued, what we've earned, what we deserve is death. So what does God do? Out of his love and his grace. And this isn't a new story. This has been the story that he will then step off of his throne. Philippians says that Jesus being having equality with God and not consider equality with God something to be held on to himself but he humbled himself, limited himself, took on the form of a servant, lived a selfless, obedient life, obedient, keeping the contract, keeping the covenant. An obedient death, death on a cross. A device made of wood that would bring salvation. That's what Genesis 6 is telling me. It's pointing to the ultimate ark. It's pointing to the ultimate story 
the crux of the story, where we get that term. This is where it all happens at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he sheds his blood, he pays off the ledger. Not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He holds both ends of the bargain. So then it's an everlasting covenant that you can't mess up. That's good news. What do I do? Like Noah, you trust God. See, the ark wasn't what saved Noah. Trusting God saved Noah. So then, what is this salvation? This salvation is that God sent his only son that whosoever would what? Believe, trust, trust him to hold his end and our end of the bargain, this everlasting covenant that I can trust in him, that he paid my debt, he washed away my sin, and he makes a way of salvation. See, Genesis 6 was about starting over because there was a hardware issue. In the story of the New Testament, tells us something completely different. Because here's the reality. We still see problems in the world. We still go, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to fix this? Like, okay, flood, but man, there's problems. There's evil. There's wickedness. What are you going to do about it? You ever feel that way? See, what would happen if God destroys evil? You have to destroy us along with it. I was watching Joe Rogan the other day. Don't judge me. You watch it too. And, man, they were having this conversation uh, about this guy. You, you probably never heard of him. Uh, Elon Musk. And, uh, and they are having this conversation. And the conversation was this. He's like, man, what's going to happen? Like, Elon's trying to go to Mars. You're like... He's trying, he's trying to get out of here. Like, you know that, right? Like, they're trying, they're trying to live on Mars. I don't know if you know this or not, right? You haven't been asleep, right? right? You, you live near a place where they shoot rockets into the air. I don't know if you saw that or not, right? What do you, what do you mean? What do you mean they're trying to get out of here? Do you know there's this idea that this world is going to end in disaster and we need an ark. We need to get the hell out of here. That's the idea. But they started having this conversation, him and the person he was interviewing. He says, you know, I'm curious if he pulls this off and they live on Mars. He's like, I wonder if they're going to have laws. He's like, what's going to keep people from going wrong. Well, yeah. He, he started having this conversation. He goes, yeah, I mean, if it's 12 people, are they going to just have democracy and vote wins? But like, what, what if there's a million people there? Because what if we go out? He goes, what will keep man from being a man going his own way and astray? Joe Rogan asked the question, he goes, what's going to keep man from being greedy? What's going to keep him from being manipulative? What's going to keep him? And then he makes this, he goes, maybe, maybe new, ev- see, this is where the origin comes in. Uh, I forgot to add this piece in the first service, so tell him that this service was better. The, he says, maybe we've stopped biological evolution and what we'll need is technological evolution. We'll need software. Maybe there'll be something that gets implanted to change the software. He's literally saying, maybe we need not a hardware upgrade, 
We need a software upgrade. Now think about what he's saying. Someone comes to Jesus and says, teacher, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? He says, you have to be born again. You have to have a a software update. Repentance means to change the way you think so that you do something different. He's going, listen, man goes astray. It's like he's hardwired. It's like he's trapped in a Tesla on autopilot. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He needs a new life. He needs a software update, a new hard drive, a new heart. Jesus says, unless you're born again, Unless there's new creation bursting out in the middle of this one. See, that's what the world is telling us. That's what our experiences tell us. And the Bible has been telling us the solution. Who's going to fix this? He's got a plan and a way of salvation. And this time it doesn't start from the outside in. It starts from the inside out. What's he going to do about evil? He's going to offer a new life. Why? Because he exchanged his for yours. He lived. He showed us the programming. He showed us the design. He showed us the way, and he offers his life, this new resurrected life. That's why the Bible says, listen, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Anyone be in Christ, in the ark of God that is Jesus Christ. If anyone be in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. An ability to live this new life with Jesus. That's the story. The story is I need a new life. Listen, friends, he can bring something new right in the middle of this one. If Genesis 6 was a decreation account, then the cross is about new creation right in the middle of this one. What does that mean? He can bring a new marriage right in the middle of your old one. He can bring new relationships right in the middle of the old ones. He bring a new way of life right here, right now. He can spark something new right in the middle. When you think all is gone and it needs to be wiped away because here's the idea, here's, here's what the enemy traps us in. If we could just get out of here, if we could just go to Mars. And then they're asking the question, wait, we'll be there too. We seem to be the problem. Who's going to fix that? Laws won't do it, friend. Laws never changed human hearts. Laws don't restrict. They just convict. They just bring guilt and shame. But the cross of Jesus Christ brings new creation. See, we're convinced if I could just move, I could just get a new job, just get a new spouse, get a new best friend, Get a new state. We'll move to Kentucky. All right, all right, all right. It's a good one. But see, the problem isn't somewhere else. The problem's right here. And he offers a new life. How do I get this new life? How do I get this salvation? Like Noah, you trust God. Like Noah, you trust that he's made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Like Noah, you believe God. Like Abraham, you believe God and it's counted as righteousness. You believe that he's held both ends of the bargain, making an everlasting covenant that's not based on my transactions, it's not based on my merit, but it's based on grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor with God like Noah had. That's the story. And then you go, well, what is he doing about all this mess? If you ever think about that, God wants you to do something. See, sometimes we say, I would never believe in a God who was wrathful, but I could never believe in a God who wasn't. I could never believe in a God who was indifferent to the injustice 
of people we love. Friend, I'm going to tell you, he's not indifferent. He sees it. And someday, he's prepared a day that all will stand before him and they will face judgment. And the question is, have I been found in Christ? Have I trusted him to pay my debt? Or will I stand on my own merits? You say, God, there's a broken world. Fix it. First Peter begins to talk about it. He says, God is not slow in how you perceive slowness, but he longs for everyone to come to repentance, to have a software update, to have a new life. He's longing and he's using you as messengers of righteousness. So then how do I behave? How do I share people? You act like God when he holds the end of the bargain when others don't. What does that mean, Pastor Sam? You forgive when they haven't? What is it like? You love when they don't. You give when they take. You go when they won't. What? Like God does for us. And then they'll see your good works. And they'll see how good God is. How he takes broken, messed up. Anybody else in that category? And he forgives and he redeems and he gives new life so that all can see just how good he is. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace that you help us receive this new life that comes through faith in Jesus, the ark of God this new covenant that you've paid for in your blood. You lived and died in our place, paying our debt and offering us this free gift of grace, new life with you. Change us from the inside out. Make us new. Bring new creation right here in the middle of this old one. And let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said... Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?